Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. So we're in Luke chapter 16 and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so last week, Jesus called his disciples to handle their possessions and their relationships with other people in light of eternity, and not just simply in, in light of this temporary earthly life. And he challenged the Pharisees for their failure to do that. And now as we pick up again in verse 19, he moves immediately into another parable. And it's important for us to see that this passage does not stand on its own. Right? It, it goes with verses 1 through 18. There's no transition statement here. And so this is directly uh, a direct continuation of what we saw in the first half of the chapter last week. And like in the first parable last week, this parable begins with a rich man. Actually, this parable begins with a very rich man. Right? Jesus describes him as someone who wore purple clothing and fine linen, which were very expensive materials typically reserved for, for royalty. He also describes him as someone who feasted sumptuously. Right? Now, each of these things reveals that, that this man has money. But the real kicker here is that, that these things characterize this man's every day. You know, most, most all of us have a, a nice outfit or two that we will put on for special occasions. Every now and then we might go all out on dinner to celebrate a major milestone. But this man has so much money that he lives in constant luxury. He has nothing but the best all day, every day. Well, then in verse 20, we're introduced to another man named Lazarus. Lazarus is covered with sores, which probably means that he has leprosy or some other type of skin disease. And he is laid at the gate of the rich man's house, which probably means that he's either paralyzed or lame. Beyond that, Jesus describes him as longing to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table, which tells us that he's probably starving. And if all that weren't enough, wild dogs come up and lick his sores, which tells us that he's in constant pain and discomfort. And so as the story is set up, a, a contrast between these two people could not be greater. Right? Lazarus and his life are the total opposite of the life of this rich man. Now before we move on, there are two details that I think we should acknowledge that, that really frame the story for us. First of all, we need to understand that Lazarus is poor, as Jesus says he is in verse 21. Now, that may seem obvious to you. The reality is that in the modern Western world, we tend to combine everyone who doesn't have much into one big category of being poor, while the Bible actually distinguishes in three different categories. And even as we've been reading the Proverbs in our, our services this year, we've seen some of these categories. And so some people don't have much, but it's not because they're legitimately poor. It's that they're lazy. 
and, and they don't want to put forth the effort to provide for themselves. And in that case, the biblical prescription is not to enable people in their laziness. Uh, it's, it's for them to get up and go to work. And then some other people don't have much, but again, it's not because they're poor, it's because they're foolish, and they make poor decisions. They, they waste their money. And again, the, the biblical prescription in that situation is not to enable people in their foolishness, it's for them to seek wisdom and to make better life decisions. But then the third category of people are legitimately poor. They don't have much, and that's because for, for any number of reasons that are beyond their control, they are not able to provide enough for what they need. And in that case, the biblical prescription is for us to do what we can to assist them. And so we need to see that, that Lazarus is legitimately poor. Uh, again, the fact that he is, is laid at the gate of the rich man indicates that he is paralyzed or lame, so he's unable to work. And even if he was able, being covered with sores means that he's ritually unclean and nobody is going to want to hire him. And so as a result, he is unable to provide for his own needs and he would be a prime candidate to receive assistance from the rich man in the story. Then the second detail we need to see is the fact that Lazarus has a name. And you may not have picked up on it, but Jesus never names the characters in his parables. And so last week we had a, a rich man and a dishonest manager, but we don't really know anything else about them. Right? The week before that we had a man who had two sons. But other than that, we really don't know anything else about them. And, and uh, that's the case across all of Jesus' parables. But here we have a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And so the question is why does this man have a name when all of the other characters in Jesus' parables are nameless? Well, the name Lazarus means God is my help. And I think that Jesus gives him this name because it tells us, it communicates something about who Lazarus is. And that's that rather than just a generic poor person, Lazarus is someone who, despite his earthly circumstances, has put his hope in the Lord. In other words, Lazarus is a man of faith, and thus he is in a right relationship with God, which is going to be an important detail in order for us to understand the parable properly. And so Lazarus is a faithful Jew who is legitimately poor. And consequently, he is someone that we would expect this rich man to assist. But there's no indication that the rich man ever does anything for him, despite the fact that he would see him at his gate every single day, and despite the fact that this rich man literally has more money than he knows what to do with. And we'll see how the story develops as we pick up again, beginning in verse 22. It says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, 
and none may cross from there to us. And so picking up again in verse 22, we fast forward to the time when Lazarus dies. And upon his death, we see that he is carried by the angels to Abraham's side, which is a a Jewish synonym for being in heaven. But beyond simply being in heaven, we've talked a couple of times through Luke about the importance of of seating position in the ancient world. And so for Lazarus to be portrayed right next to Abraham here indicates that he has been put in a position of high honor in contrast to his earthly life that was characterized by humiliation and shame. Then we see that the rich man also dies, but upon his death, he ends up in Hades, which is the the Greek word for hell, being tormented in judgment. And in verse 23, he, he looks up and he sees Abraham far away. He sees Lazarus next to him. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And the idea here is that the rich man is now in such agony that even the smallest source of relief, even a a drop of water, would be most welcome. And there are another two details here that I think are worth highlighting. First of all, we see that the rich man calls Abraham father, which reinforces the fact that he is a Jew who probably expected to go to heaven. But through his unrepentant sin, the rich man proved that he was unfaithful to the covenant as an unbeliever. So some of you may remember John the Baptist's warning from from back in chapter 3 as he called to the crowds listening to him to, quote, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We see that the rich man fell into that trap. And as the Pharisees, who we saw last week, were lovers of money, hear Jesus telling this story, they would recognize that this is aimed at them as well. Then secondly, I think it's, it's striking that even as the rich man sits in hell and he sees Lazarus honored at the very side of Abraham, it doesn't seem to change the fact that he sees Lazarus as beneath him. He tells Abraham, asks Abraham, go send Lazarus to get water for me, like a little errand boy whose purpose in life is to serve him and do his bidding. And so while being in hell is unspeakably awful, even that does not appear to change the man's heart. And so the rich man calls out to Abraham for help, But in verse 25, Abraham replies that there is no comfort that he can offer him. All of his comfort came during his sinful earthly life, when he enjoyed all that the world had to offer, while Lazarus suffered alone. But now, Lazarus has been comforted in salvation, while the rich man experiences God's righteous judgment. So in other words, there is no comfort available for him, and that's as it should be. But even besides that, even if if there were someone who was inclined to help him, we see in verse 26 that that there is a great chasm, a huge space has been set in place that prevents people from going to one place or the other. And so we're reminded here that our eternal destinies are fixed. Once we die, 
We are, are locked in, for better or for worse. We are either in heaven or we are in hell. And so we see that there has been a great reversal. As much as Lazarus suffered in his life, his faith has led him to eternal comfort. And as much as the rich man enjoyed in his life, the idol of his money has ultimately failed him. There's one last element to the story, which we'll pick up as we, or as we will see as we pick up again one last time, beginning in verse 27. The rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so once the rich man realizes that there's no hope for him, his, his attention turns to his brothers. We see that he has five of them. And he asks Abraham, at the very least, to send Lazarus back to warn them so that they, can, can, uh, so they will not end up like him in hell. But in response, Abraham insists that the brothers have Moses and the prophets, which is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And so the brothers must listen to and believe what they say. And the idea is that as Jews, the brothers, like the rich man himself, have been given the testimony of God's word, which tells them everything they need to know in order to live a life that is pleasing to God, if they want to. And but the rich man insists that that's not going to work. Apparently he's concerned that they don't want to live a life that is pleasing to God. But he says that if someone were to come back from the dead, then they would repent. Then they would believe and they would get their, their stuff together. But in verse 31, Abraham emphasizes that if they refuse to listen to Moses and the prophets, then they would not be convinced even if someone were to rise from the dead. Now, this last statement has several significant implications for our lives today. All right, for one, we see that Abraham and really Jesus, who's telling the story, emphasize the doctrine that we typically refer to as the sufficiency of Scripture, which, as I just mentioned, means that God's Word tells us everything we need to know in order for us to be able to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. Right? Abraham insists that the rich man's brothers know how to live because God has already revealed what He expects from His people in His Word. Now, it could be said that God's Word doesn't always tell us everything we would like to know about particular topics. All of us have questions that we're ready to ask the Lord as soon as we get to heaven. But it does tell us everything we need to know and everything that the Lord will hold us accountable for on Judgment Day. And so to be clear, we don't need any other form of divine revelation. We don't need a supplemental text of Scripture like Christian cults have. We don't need a prophet who, who hears from God for us. We don't need God to speak to us audibly, as cool as that would be. Right? We have everything that we need in God's word. Secondly, we're reminded in this last statement, once again, that seeing is not necessarily believing. Right? All the people who, who say that they would believe in Jesus if they just saw one miracle, 
don't understand the sinfully stubborn nature of their own hearts. Abraham insists that if a person is unwilling to believe God's word, then they're not going to be convinced even if somebody should rise from the dead. Let me ask, what do you think about that? Perhaps you disagree. In your mind, you think, well, if I saw someone come back from the dead, I'd believe anything that they said. Right? But I think this, this instinct betrays our own lack of understanding how naturally resistant our hearts are to God. Remember, in context, Jesus is telling this parable in the midst of a crowd who have seen dozens of his miracles. And yet so many of them, rather than submitting their lives to him, are digging their heels resistantly and, and, and rejecting his claim over their lives. Seeing is not necessarily believing. Frankly, we need to keep this in mind the next time someone writes a book about how they died and went to heaven, but then God sent them back so that they could tell everyone that heaven is for real. I'm just going to throw that out to you. Many of you will remember the, the slew of, of heaven tourism books that blew up about 15 to 20 years ago. Church, we know that heaven and hell are real because God's word tells us that they are. And someone claiming to have come back from the dead can't add to or take away from that. Although they can add to their wallet and take away from yours. Listen, they may travel around the world speaking at churches and conferences. They may turn their story into a Hollywood movie. But I think it's apparent from our text this morning that God does not operate that way. God has spoken in his word. Now, in fairness, that's not necessarily to say that it's a sin to read the books or, or to watch the movies. But it is a call for us to have discernment in what we read and what we buy into. That's not where we want to get our theology. God's word is sufficient. And then finally, as Abraham emphasizes the sufficiency of God's word, he also emphasizes the necessity of God's word. We need the scriptures. This is always important for us to be reminded of today because we live in a time and a day when churches constantly face a temptation to rely on other things in order to make them successful, however you define that. And so we may have a particular style of, of music, or, or we may have a coffee bar in the lobby, or we may have million-dollar children's facilities. And to be clear, again, there, there's not necessarily anything wrong with any of those things. Right, the point is that whatever we may have or not have, whatever else we may do or not do, we must ground our church in the scriptures. We want to read the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, and preach the Bible because God uses his word to work in the world. He uses his word to draw people to faith in Jesus through the gospel. He uses his word to transform our hearts and minds and make us the people that he's called us to be. And he uses his word to direct our lives as individuals and as a church as we seek to make disciples of Jesus and fulfill the Great Commission. Again, whatever else may be true about us as a church, we want everything we do to be shaped by the scriptures so that we become shaped by the scriptures in everything we do. Then finally, we also see the urgency of responding to God's word. And when the Bible talks about the reality of sin and judgment, we need to pay attention to that. When God's word tells us that, that God has made a way for us to be saved by sending Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin in our place, 
then we need to respond to the gospel by repenting of our sin and placing our hope in him. Despite his poverty, Lazarus put his hope in the Lord, and everything turned out just fine in the end. But the rich man put his hope in his wealth and found out the hard way that idols cannot save. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus uses another parable to illustrate the truth that he started on last week, the danger that we saw of allowing the love of money to master our lives. In the first half of chapter 16, Jesus warned, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And the truth, which is illustrated in this parable, is that how we use our money and how we relate with other people reveals where our hearts are. You see, rather than using his worldly wealth to make friends who would welcome him into eternal dwellings, as we saw last week, the rich man used his resources completely on himself. And so the question for us is, unlike the rich man and his brothers and the Pharisees, will we hear and respond to the testimony of God's word? Will we order our lives, the way that we use our resources and our relationships with other people, so that it is clear that our ultimate loyalty in life belongs to Jesus and not to the things of this world? May God's word accomplish its purpose in our hearts and minds this morning and work its way out into our lives for his glory. Let's pray together.